You're listening to Summit Podcasts, where you'll find sermon audio, weekly discussions of the message, the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and much, much more. Subscribe today at summitpodcast.church and share this episode with your friends. Summit Church, every life made different. Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to Leadership Night, uh, first Leadership Night of 2023. And something tells me that there might be a few people who forgot we had Leadership Night tonight. I didn't announce it on Sunday, so that was my fault for not uh, not being uh, cooperative with you. But um, don't forget, it's the first Wednesday of every month. Generally, the only exception is uh, the month of July, but... Uh, but yeah, first Wednesday of every month. And uh, so we'll be back here on February 1st next month. Make sure you mark your calendars for that uh, for next month as well. I wanna join, uh, welcome all of you that are watching online as well, whether you're watching live or maybe you're watching later. I just wanna say thanks so much. I appreciate that. And also those that might be listening to the podcast as well. So I hope, uh, hope this is beneficial for you and, um, and appreciate you taking time to grow your leadership. Um, so I'm going to pray and then we'll jump into the topic for the evening together. Um, so let's go to the Lord. God, thank you so much, uh, for the ability we have to learn and grow. And God, we know that what we have is from you and that even what we learn is from you. So God, I pray that you would lead us and direct us tonight. I pray that we would grow our leadership and as our leadership development, uh, happens, I pray that we would grow influence and as we're growing our influence, God, I pray that ultimately, um, you would be glorified. So God, bless us to be a blessing tonight. And I pray for those that are here, those that are listening or watching that are struggling, um, they're having a hard time, they're going through some difficulties. Lord, I just pray a blessing on them. I pray your Holy Spirit would minister in them. And I pray that you be glorified. So God, have your way with us in this next hour we've got together in Christ's name, amen. Well, guys, thanks again for being here. If you're new to Leadership Night, what we generally do is take about 25 minutes, 30 minutes maybe, and we'll talk about a leadership topic together. And then, um, and then we'll just do Q&A, we'll do open forum, just talk back and forth a little bit. And, uh, and so um, I'd love to hear what some of you have to say um, and for some of you to share your opinions on some of this stuff as well, because this is not intended just to be a lecture at all, but... Um, but I want to share some of the things that I feel like God's put in my heart, and, uh, and hopefully that's beneficial for you. Uh, we've done this before, but um, I don't know if you remember last month, some of you that were here, I told you that in the month of January, we were going to talk about recession-proofing your business, how to, how to have a recession-proof business or company or department. And, um, and so what I'll tell you about our, our conversation is kind of twofold. Number one... Um, I, I found an article on Harvard Business Review from 2010, about two months ago, and I went through it, and it just, it was so fascinating to me. And so a lot of what we're talking about tonight is taken from a, um, a study that they did back in 2010, and they did that because they were coming out of a recession, um, and they were trying to figure out, what do we do now? And so I stumbled on this article, and I just thought it was brilliant, and um, so it, it omits the, um, some of the things that happened in the 2008 recession uh, because they didn't have data to, to square it. But, um, but there is a lot of 
There's a lot of really good principles in there for us. So that's the first thing. So if you, if you are interested, uh, Vanessa, who's my assistant in our office coordinator, she will uh, get you the link to that. Because basically I'm not sharing a ton of insight. I'm sharing some opinions about some things, but really I'm aggregating some of the things that they talked about in their study. Um, so they'll send you the link so you can look at the study and dig through it if you'd like. So here's the thing though. Um, we kind of start at the macro level and then we'll work our way down to the micro. Because for some of you, you're like, I lead a department. I have no control over our company being recession-proof or not. That's okay. Um, but there are things you can do within your department because what we're going to see in the data and in some of the trends is that it's not simply about what, um, what steps your company takes. It's about the culture that's built in a lot of ways. And so that's some of the things we'll talk about as we get down in this a little bit more. So, so let me just jump in here. Um, a lot of CEOs, CFOs, C-suite leaders, um, when it comes to when it comes to economic turndown, whether it's a recession or inflation or you know things like that, um, it's easy to become short-sighted. It's easy to focus on how do we survive, how do we get through this next moment, instead of looking with foresight down the road, going, "Hey, what are we going to do when this is over with?" Um, and it's easy to do. Even the very best leaders can do that. Um, even in our own lives, think personally about some of the issues you've, you've had, uh, personal issues with a child or a spouse or a loved one. And when that, that happens, all of a sudden it's real easy to uh, drop our focus to what's immediately important, what the, the felt need. And the same thing is true in companies. Companies do this all the time. And I don't know if you noticed... Um, um, over the last six months especially, have you noticed headlines of major companies that have institute, instituted layoffs? Um, major companies laying off 10,000, 15,000, you know, just sweeping moves because of what's going on in the economy. And it's easy to do that. It's easy to just have a gut response and go, we got to do something, let's, get, let's do it. But if we're not careful, we can become short-sighted. And there's a big difference between surviving and thriving. There's a big difference between, um, hey, I'm just gonna tread water till this is over with, and then we're gonna hope we're okay on the other side of it, which is not a real strategy. But that's all, what a lot of companies try to do. They try to just go, hey, we're gonna just batten down the hatches and hope we can make it through this, and then we'll figure it out on the other side. Um, but the companies that do well on the other side of a recession are the ones that are strategic about it and have a plan as they go through it. And so again, even if you're not the CEO of your organization or the owner or the founder or whatever it might be, there are things you can do as well. So let me just jump right into this. The, the study that, that I mentioned to you earlier, they took into account three major global recessions. It was 1980, which is funny because there's a couple people in the room that might not have been, oh, Jason, were you alive in 1980? No, you were not. Okay. So the, the, the 1980 recession, the 1990 recession, and then the 2000 uh, dot-com bust, um, that would be in that range. And so those are the big ones that this kind of takes into account. And what they did is they studied 4,700 companies and they broke down the data into three key time periods, the three years before 
the recession, the three years following the recession, and then the period of the recession. Um, and the recession can last lots of different time periods. Uh, according to our president, uh, it may, may be a month. Well, we're just in a recession for a month and we're out of it. So it, it depends on who you talk to. But basically, this is looking at how were they before, how are they after, and what was their behavior during that made the difference. And so this is really what it looked at. Um, and, and here's a couple quick numbers at the top. One of the things they found is that 17% of the 4,700, and these are 4,700 publicly traded companies. So these, were, uh, these weren't mom and pop grocery stores. These were major companies. Uh, but 17% of the 4,700 companies that entered into one of these three recessions did not make it out alive. They either closed their doors, they either, um, they either left the publicly traded marketplace, they became private, or they were merged or bought out by another company. Um, and so th those numbers are pretty stark. 17% didn't survive intact. Um, and so that's one thing that I think realistically we have to look at. And when it comes to recession, there are some companies and some industries that will not make it. They are not going to survive. Um, and it's important for us to understand that. So how do we differentiate us, you know, our companies, the groups we lead with the ones that aren't going to make it? Um, what do we need to do differently? Because even if we survive, the numbers say only about 9% of the companies that come out of a recession historically um, do significantly better than their competition. So significantly better would be 10% revenue or greater. Um, and so what we have to understand is, yes, we can thrive. Yes, we can do well. Yes, we can come out of it if we have the right strategy, if we build the right culture. Um, but it's still going to be an exception if we kill it, um, because not a lot of companies can do that. So what they basically did is they broke it down into four categories. There are, there are four kinds of companies that go through recession. There's a prevention uh, Prevention-focused company. There's a promotion-focused company. Um, there are uh, pragmatic companies, and then there are progressive companies. Now, uh, I'm going to spend the most time on the prevention-focused companies. Probably that's the first category I want to look at with you guys. And this is what you might expect it to be: a prevention-focused company is a company that says we don't want to lose anything in this. So. Um, we don't want to lose market share. We don't want to lose what we have. So they're going to be very aggressive at layoffs and cuts. They're going to be very aggressive saying, hey, we're cutting, uh, we're getting rid of R&D. Um, we're getting rid of um, capital expenditures. We're getting rid of all that. We're not spending any money and we're cutting 10% of our labor force. Um, because that is the best way to cut costs, save money, to protect ourselves. And, and what, what you see with companies like that is typically in the short term, that's a really good thing to do um, because it builds in margin very quickly. When you lay off um, you know, 10% or 15% of your labor force, it builds in margin for you all of a sudden. Um, the problem with this is it's short-sighted because when you lay off your labor force, um, you probably aren't changing your programming or what you're doing or what you're expecting to produce. So now you're expecting to get more from fewer people. So we'll get into this in a second. There are some negative consequences to this for sure. So there are four key negative consequences to this. Um, 
But, but one of the big problems with this strategy as well is uh, it doesn't hold up over time. It's short-sighted. So it's great in the short term, but when you look at the long-term effects, it, it, it undermines your organization, undermines your company. One of the examples of this was a company that you probably have one of their devices or you've owned one at some point or another, and it's Sony Corporation. Um, some of you have probably had a CD player or a, a, a Walkman. Old school, right? Jason definitely doesn't remember Walkmans. Discman is another one. You remember the Discman that that it would play the CD and you had to hold it perfectly still, so it was perfect for nothing. Really, you couldn't run with it. You couldn't have it in your car. Nothing. It was terrible. Um, So Sony, in um, in the global recession of 2008, they announced very quickly after this recession kicked in that they were gonna cut $2.6 billion of costs, of annual expenses. Uh, Along with that, they laid off about 11% of their labor, I'm I'm sorry, they laid off 16,000 people all at the same time. They had plans, and remember this is 2008, they had plans for a new factory to start producing LCD TVs, liquid crystal display TVs, which was the cutting edge. They put that on hold, They, they shut everything down. So they just said, we are going to protect what we've got. And it paid off in the short term. In the long term, what they saw though, is that they ultimately lost market share to other companies. They lost ground in the long term because now everything ground to a halt just so they could protect themselves. This happened in 2008, but it was a replay of what they did in 2000. So in the 2000 um, recession, uh, they laid off 11% of their labor force, um, it, it cut its R&D expenditures by 12%. They, the profit margin in the short term went from 8% to 12%, which was great. If you're a stockholder, you're looking at that going on. We love the recession, right? Because they're making some money here, but they didn't hold up. So in, in years following, the growth tumbled from 11% year-over-year growth to 1% year-over-year growth. And they lost market share to competitors. Um, And so they, in two successive recessions, uh, decided it's better for us to play it really, really safe. And it cost them, and it was a problem. So here's the four major problems with prevention focus. Um, And I want you to think about your specific areas too that you lead, not just your not just the C-suite, but, but wherever you might lead from. So here are four problems with prevention focus in a global recession. The first is that um, executive and, uh, executives and employees start approaching every decision through a loss-minimizing lens. So instead of saying, how are we going to grow? How are we going to pick up market share? How are we going to get new clients? It becomes about how do we not lose what we have? And if you're sitting here, if you're watching this or listening to this, you're probably a leader. You're probably trying to grow in your leadership. And even if you don't understand why, when I say that to you, you go, oh, that's, that just feels wrong to say we got to protect what we have. We're not going to be worried about growth or development. Um, but that is the culture that starts to get it. This idea gets in the water of our culture. It's very, very hard to get out. Um, this idea that we're just going to protect what we have. We want to minimize losses. Um, because people stop taking risks, they stop dreaming about the future, and all they're trying to do is just manage, just get through, just weather the storm. Um, so the siege mentality leads to organization, uh, an organization to aim low and keep both innovation and cost-cutting incremental. So again, you've, you're encouraging people not to dream. You're encouraging people 
to, um, to play it safe. And for me as a leader, that's one of the worst things I can do for my people on my team. I wanna encourage the people on my team to dream big, to swing for the fences when it's appropriate. Um, but when we, approach, when we approach leadership during a recession from a prevention focus, then it's gonna undermine that. The second thing is this, instead of learning to operate more efficiently, organizations try to do more uh, more of the same with less. This is what I said a minute ago about we lay off people and then we expect the same level of production and it's just impossible. Um, so what happens is we get lower quality. Uh, there's a drop in customer satisfaction. There's a drop in morale for the organization. Uh, and just all in all, this is problematic. The third thing is this, cost-cutting decisions become centralized. So the finance department, um, the the comptroller, whatever it might be, the CFO, um, they make across the board cuts and they pay little attention to initiatives that may be the, the, the catalyst of post-recession growth. They're simply looking at the bottom line. Um, and one of the things that I think is, is good to do, and we'll see this in a minute, it's good for us as, as leaders to look at how we can cut costs, but it's important to empower the people in our organization to help us with that. Because if it's centralized, then it feels like something that's done to us. But if we invite people into this conversation, then it feels like something that we can all help be um, a solution for. Um, but again, this is centrally focused. It's you know this top-down kind of idea um, with, with prevention. Uh, the fourth thing is this, pessimism permeates the organization, centralization, strict controls, and the constant threat of more cuts uh, build a feeling of disempowerment. Uh, the focus becomes survival, both personal and organizational. So, so what happens is um, people don't wanna be there because they know, hey, every time the economy goes bad, they're gonna lay off a group of people. Um, so there's a low level of buy-in, there's a low level of, commitment. There's a low level of, you know, the, the company is less committed to the people than the people are to the company. At least that's what the perception is. And it's hard to get buy-in from that. Um, I mentioned this a minute ago, but, but another part of this is when the recession ends, then you've got to go back and backfill. Like, oh, we got to ramp back up. Well, if, if you know anything about hiring, it's expensive to hire people and it's expensive to train people and it's expensive to, to do all those things. So now those profit margins you gained when you laid people off are gone when you have to hire people back. And now not only are your profit margins gone, but you haven't done anything to develop new products or ideas or innovation. Um, you've cut costs, you've cut marketing, you've cut everything. And so now you're probably in worse shape than you were before um, because you decided to play it safe. Um, so uh, the odds, uh, and I'll give you these numbers as we go through, the odds are higher by 21%. Um, if you are a company that, that operates this way, the odds that you will outperform your competitors is, is about 21%. So 21% chance that you can outperform your competitors, which doesn't sound bad until we see some of the other numbers that we're gonna look at by approaching this with a prevention focus. Um, so 
if you couldn't tell by the way I'm talking, this is definitely not the way to go. If you are looking at how do we get through this? How do we weather this? Let's go fire a bunch of people and stop dreaming about the future and just hope everything's gonna work out well. Uh, this is not the right strategy, but we see the strategy over and over and over. Now, the next strategy is the opposite end of the spectrum of the prevention strategy. It's a promotion strategy. The promotion strategy uh, says, let's invest more in offensive moves, uh, moves that provide benefits um, that provide, I'm sorry, upside benefits than their peers. We're gonna, we're gonna spend more than our competitors do on these things. Now, there is some wisdom here because the truth is, um, okay, we started our Blairsville location in um, the middle of pan, a pandemic. Um, you weren't supposed to buy and sell real estate, which was a perfect time to buy and sell real estate, honestly, because the people that had the real estate were freaking out in Blairsville about nobody was buying and now we have no idea what's gonna happen. And so for us, it felt like a great opportunity to buy a piece of property way below market value. And so we took advantage of that. Um, I was a little nervous. Craig was on the ride with that. And we were a little nervous going into that, like, okay, we're going to spend some money on this building. And I think we're going to do okay afterwards. You know, I think it's going to turn out okay. Uh, and now we're doing the same thing, honestly, looking at Johnstown. It's like, oh, hey, global recession is hitting. Let's look for a building in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which doesn't make sense. But these are the things we're doing. So I think it's important for us to look at opportunities when they come their way um, and and when there's an economic downturn, there's gonna be more opportunities. So it's important to look at those, uh, but be use discretion about what we pull the trigger on and what we don't. Because a promotion-focused company, uh, they don't have a lot of discretion. They're gonna be super aggressive, um, and they are almost delusional in their belief that everything is gonna be fine. Um, and so this is, this is an issue because what happens is the delusion of the leaders will bleed down into the rest of the organization. So it, it prevents people in the organization from being honest up the line and honest with themselves. So it's hard for them to be able to look objectively at what's going on in the world and respond to it effectively. Because what happens is, um, let's say you're part of a sales organization and um, you have clients that their budget is cut. Um, a promotionally focused organization is going to be mystified by the fact that you don't still want to buy my product anymore. And so instead of tweaking your product to adjust for their budget, what a promotionally focused company will do is add bells and whistles to their product, uh, make it bigger and brighter, and try to woo that way. Now, there's nothing wrong with adding that, but it's the singular focus that the problem is their problem, it's not our problem. We don't need to adjust, they need to adjust. Um, and this is what happens a lot of times with this kind of thinking. Um, how many of you ever had a Hewlett Packard printer or laptop or camera or something like that? Did any of you? Yeah, all of you. Yeah, a lot of you. Um, HP was huge, right? Um, and um, this is not supposed to be a political statement at all, so don't receive it this way. Uh, they had, in the, the 2000 global recession, they had a, a CEO named Carly Fiorina. Does anybody, does that name ring a bell for anybody? She was part of the Trump administration. She was the secretary of education for the Trump administration. She was the CEO of Hewlett Packard at the time. So this recession comes through and Carly Fiorina, they go all in. 
and they are the quintessential promotion-focused company. Um, they decide that they're going to expand, that they're going to spend money. In fact, I've got a quote here. She said, in blackjack, you double down when you have an increasing probability of winning. We're going to double down. Now, hindsight is twenty twenty, but I will tell you, they did not win. They doubled down and they busted because what happened is they started spending all this money. Um, they spent... $250 million on uh, rebranding. They spent a billion dollars on um, I, uh, internet technology development um, in third world countries. They spent um, uh, they, the largest acquisition in their company's history. They bought out um, Compaq for like $25 billion. All this stuff happened in the middle of this recession. And, and they're going, let's go, let's go, let's go. Which part of me is like, yes, I love that but they ignored everything else. They had these blinders on, they ignored what was going on in the world. And as a result, um, when they came out of the, the, the recession, they were worse off for it. Um, among the 200 largest companies that went through the, the 2000 recession, promotion-focused companies grew sales by 15 billion and profits by one and a half billion, which sounds huge until you compare it to the next level, the progressive companies, uh, or the, the, third, the fourth level. So 15 billion and 1.5 billion in profits compared to progressive company who had an average increase of 28 billion and 6.6 billion in profits. So their profits were up by a factor of four, and they were almost doubled in their overall revenue and overall, overall sales. And so what we see is we can be far too aggressive because what happens is um, like with, with HP, so they started buying all these assets. They started buying all these um, um, manufacturing facilities and things all over the world, which seemed smart, right? We're, we're gaining, we're, we're picking up the pieces that other people are dropping. We're, we're, we're being smart about this. But what happens is the, the recession ended and what they were investing in was producing resources, but they weren't producing resources quick enough to build more capital for them. So as a result, um, they lost a ton of market share. They fell behind Dell. They fell behind, um, who else? Uh, There's a couple other companies that they were ahead of before the recession that after the recession, they fell behind. And so all of a sudden they weren't the industry leader anymore because they were too aggressive in the recession. And so the number I said earlier about a 21% um, probability of outperforming your, your competition when you are uh, playing it safe versus 26% when you're promotion focused. So your, your odds are better if you're gonna be aggressive, but you're still gonna have some problems if you're super aggressive. Now, the third level, and really I'll put the third and fourth together because they're pretty similar. Pragmatic companies is what they describe them as. And this is a company that combines defen defensive and offensive tactics that they understand, okay, hey, we need to be careful about how we move forward, but we need to look for opportunities as well. Um, so just to be perfectly honest with you, um, pragmatic companies and... Um, and progressive companies, not every pragmatic company is progressive, but every progressive company is pragmatic, if that makes sense. So progressive is a smaller group of this larger group of pragmatic companies. Uh, so, so with that said, let me jump right into progressive. Uh, progressive companies, um, they're going to be offensive and defensive, but they're going to be smart about how they approach it. So um, this is the combination that, that seems to produce the greatest results 
post-recession, um, and it's the one that statistically they see the best results financially in sales, basically anything they can measure. This is where the winners, where they stayed, where they lived. Um, so uh, let me figure out what to share and what not to share, because I could get into the weeds really easily on this. So uh, they did cut costs. Uh, most of the progressive companies didn't focus on labor uh, labor cuts. Uh, most of them instead focused on operational cuts. So what do we need to do differently to be more efficient operationally? Um, and this is something that people at the higher level don't always see, but if you're in a lower level, mid-level position, if you're running a department, running a team, if your boots on the ground, it's easier for, to, for you to see sometimes, oh, hey, we're laying people off, but if we just did this a little better, we would save money. But at the upper level, you go, well, that wouldn't save us that much money. And we'd have to change all these programs and how we do this. And, our, and as a result, you don't change it. It's easier just to lay people off. And so one of the things the, these companies do well is they have operational efficiency. Um, companies that improve operational efficiency fare better than those that focus on reducing the number of employees. Over and over and over, you see this for all kinds of reasons. It's part of what I said a minute ago, because if you are operationally focused on um, efficiency, even within, even within our church, this is something we talk about. Like, how do we just get better at what we do? Um, and these are questions we're trying to ask. How can we do that with a high level of excellency and cutting our costs? And if we have to cut our costs dramatically, but our excellence level is going to drop dramatically, it's not worth it for us. So how do we, how do we cut costs and still be, have a high level of excellence? And these are the questions you guys should be asking, even departmentally, um, because that's what's going to help you be a valuable employee for your organization. But it's also what's going to help your organization win. Um, because if all we do is go, well, let's cut this person. They're not very productive, and I don't like them very much, and we'll just get rid of them, and then we'll save us some money. Well, great. But like I said earlier, when the recession's over, you might have to fill that position again, and now your margin's gone. But if you're operationally efficient, that's going to help you after the recession is over with. And this is one of the reasons companies like this thrive after a recession, because their practices maintain, are maintained after the recession is over with. So they are lean in their operations even after the recession ends. Um, Okay, so a couple of companies I want to mention to you, um, Office Depot and Staples, um, obviously huge competitors. Um, when the 2000 recession hit, these two companies took very different approaches to the recession. Um, Office Depot cut 6% of their labor force right off the bat, just like axed them. Um, but it didn't reduce their operating expenses. They didn't reduce their operating costs outside of labor. Um, they maintained the same kind of operations they did before. They didn't change how they functioned, what they did. They just kept going. And so it's what we talked about a minute ago. They created a short-term uh, margin in their budget, but it didn't produce long-term margin. Uh, what they saw is um, sales growth fell, for, uh, fell from 19% before the recession to 8% after the recession. So it shrunk because they weren't innovative. They weren't thinking. They just cut labor and kind of went on their way. So look at Staples. Staples uh, actually closed some of their businesses. They closed some of their locations that they felt like were underperforming, but they actually hired 10%. They increased their labor force by 10%. So they were smart. And this is something a smart company can do when there's layoffs is you can 
cherry pick some really great employees. Uh, for some of you that you have the power to hire within your departments that maybe you're not the boss of the company, this is a great time to find people that are leaving organizations and to improve the quality of your team. Um, and this is what Staples did. Staples, they, they got lean with their operations. They hired staff, they hired the right staff and, um, and they grew their revenue. So uh, sales doubled um, from 7.1 billion in 1997 before the recession, three years before, to 14.6 billion in 2003, while office depots rose about 50% um, from 8.7 to 13.4 billion. So you had one who still grew their revenue, but they lost market share. They fell behind the other. And then you had the one who said, hey, we're going to add staff. We're going we're gonna to be smart about what we do. And as a result, they uh, became more profitable. As a, as a matter of fact, they were after the recession, they were 30% more profitable than, um, than Office Depot was. So we see that they were operationally efficient. It made the difference. Second thing is this. So operational efficiency, and the second thing is investment in the business, both current and future. Um, so during recessions, uh, progressive companies develop new markets and invest to enlarge their asset base. Uh, they take advantage of depressed prices, and they spend wisely when it comes to what they're buying. They also, um, they're also going to be judicious about increasing their budgets for research and development, for marketing. Um, and those things feel like they don't produce a quick return, and they do not. Uh, because research and development, typically, it takes years from once, when something is in R&D to turning it around to being a product on the shelf. It can take years. Um, but these companies were not so short-sighted that they said, hey, we're going to sacrifice down the road for right now to survive. They understood, hey, we can cut some costs, we can get leaner, and we can still have an advantage on the back end. So they were still forward-thinking in what they were developing, what they were producing, um, what they were dreaming about. Um, and, then, and then also the, the marketing, which is something, honestly, for us that I've gone, no, we need to cut some money now, cut marketing. But after I read something like this, I'm like, dang, we need to be increasing our marketing budget to some degree or another because it, those people who don't have money to buy your product today, right now, um, they will at some point when the recession's over. And so if, you have, if they have forgotten about you, you're gonna be in trouble when the recession's over. So it just makes sense. So um, for some of the ladies in the room, you'll appreciate this. The, the, the companies that I would point out in this scenario are um, TJ Maxx and Target. So my wife loves Target. Um, and Target is an example of a company. I actually started doing a deep dive into some of Target's business practices. And although I don't agree with everything they do or some of their moral stances on some things, I will tell you that they have done an incredible job, both coming through the 2000 recession, the 2008 recession, um, just adjusting and pivoting and just having foresight. Uh, so TJ Maxx, they did something during the, uh, was it 2000 or 2008? I don't remember now. I guess it was the uh, 2008 recession. Um, they started buying up buildings. So companies would close down retail space and they would go in. And so they expanded like crazy. They expanded their, their square footage nationwide by 25%, um, but they didn't change any of their business practices. All they did was scale what they were already doing. And as a result, um, 
it seems like that would have helped. It increased their overall revenue, but their margins were not very good because their margins weren't great before. So all they did was scale what they were already doing. They didn't innovate. They didn't think differently. They didn't try anything different. Target in both 2000 and 2008, they shifted. They said, okay, what we're doing right now is not working. Specifically in 2008, it's really interesting. So uh, they, they're direct competitors with Walmart. Uh, Walmart, and, and their annual revenue is about 140 billion a year. Um, Target's is about 110 billion a year. So um, they're, they're competitors. But the thing about Target is they don't have nearly as many locations as Walmart. So they're actually producing more on a per location basis than Walmart is. Um, but one of the things Target realized in 2008 was people were leaving Target to go shop at Walmart. And part of the reason was they understood that we've got a perception issue. People view Target as more expensive than Walmart. And it's, it's Walmart is the value shop. That's where I'm going to go to get rock bottom prices. It's a price match guarantee. It's all that kind of stuff. And so Target said, hey, we need to shift to things away from things that are luxuries for people, um, you know, things that people don't really need to stuff that people need. And this is when Target really doubled down on the grocery market where they said, hey, people need food. They need to eat. So we're going to start having more places where they can get groceries. And they began expanding this. And all of a sudden they started started getting market share back because they focused on, hey, how can we change our business and change what we're doing in order to capture the, the dollars from the retail market? Now, they only did that, but then they also changed their marketing strategy. So they spent a lot of money on marketing as well. And they went for, oh, what was, the, what was their catchphrase? Oh, gosh. Oh, if my wife was here, she could tell me. Basically, they changed their marketing strategy and they had this new catchphrase and it was like, live well, less expensive. And that was not it. That's why I'm not a marketing guy. But it was like something like that. It was like, hey, this idea was like, things will be good, like high quality, low price, something like that. And they really landed on the low price act. And so what they did is they got in people's mind, oh, hey, Mar Target is not really that much more expensive than Walmart. And they started getting people back from Walmart. Um, they've really leaned into online in the last few years. So as Walmart shifted and went online more and more to try to compete with Amazon, Target has as well. As a matter of fact, Target partners with Amazon on a number of different products, which is kind of crazy because they're competitors. Um, but what they've done is they've said, we can't keep doing what we're doing. Um, we've got to be smart about where we cut and we've got to be smart about where we expand. Um, and this is the strategy that we have to take when it comes to our departments, when it comes to our companies, when it comes to the recession that if it's not here, it will be. And I'm not trying to be chicken little here, but we just have to be smart about this stuff. Um, as a church, this is something I've looked at. Our finance team, we've talked in depth about what do we do? How do we approach this? What do we need to shift? Uh, what do we need to stop doing? What, do we, what, what is it good for us to continue to do? What do we need to do more of? So these are all things we've talked through. These are things we've, we've explored together. And, um, and tried to work out. Uh, there it is. That's what I get for checking my text. Well, uh, Vanessa just texted me. It's expect more, pay less. So that was their motto. Expect more, pay less. Um, and again, this is an idea that just gets in people's brain. So um, let me just sum this up. 
Few progressive business leaders have a master plan when they enter into a recession. Most of the progressive businesses who are led through this aren't led by people who have it all master planned out. They have it all step one, two, three, and four. But what they've done is they've created a flexible organization uh, that is nimble, that they've empowered people in their organization to make decisions, and they've created a culture of trust so that as it Come, when it comes to decisions, they can have hard conversations like, so think about this, hey, we're cutting your budget, but we're giving you more money. Those are some hard conversations to have, right? Well, wait a second, why are you cutting my budget? Like a good leader is gonna have to have those kind of conversations. Um, and so this is what they're seeing, that they don't necessarily have a master plan, but they have created a good culture, they've created a healthy environment, and they've created agility within their organization to make decisions quickly. Um, and, and this is the thing, those companies thrive not just in the recession, but coming out of a recession, because um, in a lot of ways, because they've built the right culture to, to, to do well. Uh, they're not just gonna fire people on a whim. Uh, they are looking out for how do we make the lives of our employees better? How do we help them thrive? How do we trust them when they say, hey, there's a better way of doing things? And these are the things you see with all these companies that are progressive. So I, I told you some numbers earlier. The odds are higher by 37% that a progressive company will significantly outperform their competitors. So if you function this way, it's 37% more likely you will do well, that you will outperform the people that you're competing against directly. So with all that said, I know I threw a ton of information at you. And, um, and really, as I was thinking this through, what I kept coming back to is I feel like no matter who you are, if you are leading, you have the power to shift culture in the people you're leading. Um, you have the power to equip. You have the power to trust. You have the power to, um, to believe the best in instead of the worst of. And so these are some of the things we see in those progressive companies, but it's things that maybe you can't change the whole organization, but you can change your department. You can change your team. You can change your area. So these are the things I would encourage you to do because a smart CEO or CFO, a smart business owner is gonna go, hey, wait a second, this department seems to be doing well. What are you guys doing? Um, because when, they, when it comes to layoffs, smart companies aren't laying off their top employees if they can help it. Um, they're, they're being judicious. They're, they're not cutting off their nose to spite their face. And so I would encourage you, make yourself valuable by, by making your team better. So it's a whole bunch of information through at you. I would love to talk about some of this with you, go back and forth with you some, answer questions if you've got them and lay them out for some of you as well. Because to be perfectly honest with you, I've never pastored a church through a recession. And this is, this is why I did a deep dive into it because I was like, I want to figure this out because I don't know how to do this. I've never done it before. Um, and so maybe you're like I am. Maybe you have led through this before and you've got some insight. I would love to hear that as well. So let's just throw it out there. How should a leader balance seniority against performance when deciding who to lay off? Oh gosh, That's, that is a... It probably depends on the organization. Um, I think if you're leading well, this is just my opinion, if you're leading well, the people that have seniority that have been with you will understand that, hey, this, this can't just be about you've been here the longest. You know, it's gotta be about value as well. Like, hey, what do you bring into the team? And so 
Um, so if you have led well up to that point, it should make it easier to go, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna have a hard conversation here. Um, because it's not just about, it's not purely about seniority versus production. Some of it has to be about how much did they make? Because maybe somebody's been there a long time, but they only make marginally more than the person who is more productive than them. And so that makes it a little, maybe a little more challenging. You go, okay, well, maybe you've got somebody who's making huge money and you've got somebody who's not making much, but this person is outperforming that person by a factor of three, then it's like, well, come on now. Um, seniority doesn't mean anything at that point. Uh, that sounds really cold-blooded of me to say it that way. But I think if you're looking for the, the health of your organization, the health of your company, the health of your department, you've got to approach it that way. And not everybody has the ability to do that. Some of you are stuck. You've got somebody who's been in your team for 10 years and you can never get rid of them with a crowbar, right? They're stuck forever. So, or you have a union, that's right. That is correct. As says the HR director. So yeah, you're exactly right. If you've got a, if you've got a union, I'm not gonna say where they're the HR director for if you're watching online, don't worry. But, but yeah, if you've got a union, then yeah, you're, Seniority, whatever, it's just what it is. So I don't know. Anybody else have any thoughts on that? Feedback? Yeah, that's, it's a tough one. Um, it stinks. I, I hate laying off people when I have cause. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'll tell the story. Um, I was, the, the last church I was, I was on staff at, um, there was a staff member in our church who was engaging in inappropriate relationships with their intern at the church. And we had video footage of them walking in to the office at like two in the morning by themselves. Like it was conclusive. Like there was no, and I still hated having to let that person go because I loved that guy. Like I loved him, right? And so, even with situations like that, for me, that's hard. Like, I don't like that stuff. Um, so when you get into a situation where it's like, oh, we got a budget issue, who do we lay off? The person who's been here forever that we really love, but maybe he's not as productive or the person who is killing it that hasn't been here very long. That's just, nobody enjoys that stuff. It's just hard, so. <laughs> Hold on one second. I wanna make sure that anybody who's watching online can hear this as well. Go ahead. I would add that however you make your decision that you just do it consistently. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's a good way to demoralize your team as well. It's just willy nilly. Well, they've got seniority. Or get in legal trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. What else? Do Questions you think or pushback uh... or? Do you think that re recession proofing bears any relevance to whether or not it's wise to promote hiring married couples? I don't know. Not necessarily. Um, I know there's organizations that prefer to do that, um, the nonprofit world especially, but I don't see that as an advantage necessarily. Um, I mean, just for instance, in, in our setting, uh, like we've got Pastor Dick Motzing and Cheryl Motzing, and I love them both very much. They've been here forever. Um, but if one of them got sideways and I had to lay them off for some reason, there's a good chance I'd have to lay them both off, which would not be good for the organization. Or if my wife went crazy and started doing like whatever, which she's prone to, that chick, she's, 
Like, how would, how would we functionally remove her and still let me, right? Like, and so all of a sudden it's like, well, now we might have to let two people go instead of one person. So I don't know that there's necessarily an advantage. I think it comes back to just being smart about who you're hiring, whether they're married or not. When I was thinking about that, I was thinking they might be more likely to take a pay cut. Because Maybe. if they have other reasons why they're working somewhere, like if they enjoy working with their spouse. Maybe, but I would be more inclined to say, hey, let's build a really great culture. And um, I mean, I'll pull the curtain back a little here. Um, we got several staff in the room. So, I mean, this is not a, I'm not sharing a state secret. We do not pay at the top of the scale for churches. Um, I wish we could, but we can't. Um, we can't afford to. None of, none of our staff gets paid at the top of the scale. Um, most of our staff is right in the middle. And our staff is way above average, but our, our staff gets paid at the average salary for what churches our size with our income do. But one of the things we try to do is build a really, really great culture. And that's what helps keep people on our team is because they go, okay, I could make more somewhere else, but I wouldn't be as happy somewhere else. Um, I wouldn't have this benefit. I wouldn't, whatever it is. And so that's one of the things we try to do. And so I see what you're saying with the, the couples thing. That makes sense. But I think there's better ways to get people to go, okay, I can sacrifice because, um, because the culture's good or because the environment's good or because I don't have somebody who is out to get me or I don't have to worry if I'm going to lose my job just because, you know. So, yeah, good question. What else? What would you describe as the strategy of our modern day plant a seed and it'll grow dollar general? They just pop up out of everywhere. Yeah. You know, they I, haven't lost I, any momentum. Yeah. I've thought about doing a leadership night talk on dollar general because they are fascinating to me. I love their business model because they literally, um, zag when everybody else is zigging. So most retail most modern retail companies have vacated rural, but we all live in relatively rural area, right? And there are now $3 generals in Indiana. Um, there's one, that one down south of Homer that's on the, the east side of the road, there's literally nothing else out there. It's like, but I knew exactly what they were building as soon as they started. It's like, they're putting a dollar general in there. I don't know who in the world they're servicing out there. There's not a human out there, right? But- but their, their, their strategy is we're going to go where other people aren't going. And they're not trying to, um, they're not trying to battle the, some of the big box companies. They're saying we're going to figure out what we do and what we do is rural. And, and they've got locations in urban areas too, but where their growth is happening is rural. Um, all over the United States in rural areas, they're growing like crazy. It's crazy. If you live in Cherry Tree, that's the only place to get groceries out there. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's just like that. But yeah, I, I, love, I love what Dollar General is doing, saying, hey, we're gonna put up more locations in places people, uh, other people aren't going. And that's kind of, honestly, it's kind of our strategy with, with Summit a little bit is, hey, there's bigger churches that are starting locations in Pittsburgh. Great, good for you. But there are lots of people who need churches in Johnstown or Blairsville or Clymer or, um, Catanning or, you know, all these places. So let's go where other people aren't going. So yeah, I like, I like Dollar General a lot. I think their, their strategy is interesting. Was there something specific you wanted to ask about or talk about? Expansion? In terms of the actual strategies that we talked about yeah. this evening, like where you would... Yeah, but you know what? They've been doing this for 
me think. 10 years, they've been aggressively going into rural uh, at least. And, um, and so I think probably even Dollar General might be the best example of a retail store that's recession-proof because of who they serve and because of the, the cost of the products that they are selling. Um, people are gonna go there because it's convenient, it's cheap. Um, they have most of what they need, especially you know if they do sell produce and things like that. So yeah, I think Dollar General is smart. I'm not an investment, um, I don't offer strategy for investment, but I feel like Dollar General might be a good place to go with a few extra dollars. Don't hold me to that, by the way. That's good. What else? Anybody else have thoughts or questions or comments? So traditionally, uh, social service organizations are seen as recession-proof. Yeah. Uh, but particularly now, so many are very dependent on giving. Yeah. Uh, Charitable Churches gifts. are a part of that. Yeah. I think particularly right now in the recession, giving is one of those things that's going to become questionable. I think there's some tax changes that are making it more challenging for some uh -huh. people. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I tell, I talk to pastors about this a lot because, um, and we'll, uh, you know, we'll have a business meeting here in a couple of weeks and, and what you'll see is our finances are still growing, not at the rate they were like four years ago. Um, but when I talk to other pastors in our region, it's like, Oh man, we're doing really well. And so we have, I have pastors ask me all the time, like, okay, how are you guys doing some of this? And one of the things I go back to over and over and over again, I think it's appropriate for nonprofits is that people don't give to need, they give to vision. Like people don't give to go, well, we got to pay the bills every week. So let's give some money to Summit Church. They don't give, that's not motivating. That's not a heart thing. That is, uh, okay, well, they got to pay their bills and I don't want anybody to be laid off, so I'll, I'll give. But people give to vision. And so when you can cast a compelling vision that connects with somebody's heart, people will give. I mean, there's a couple of things that, um, uh, there's a couple of specific things this next year that we already have laid out that we know that we're going to cast vision for with our church that, it's going to be a slam dunk. It's going to be easy because I already know this is going to connect really well with our people's hearts. And we're going to raise a significant amount of money in a very short amount of time because, uh, because I know our people's hearts, right? So I think it all comes back to, you know, casting a compelling vision, whatever that is, telling the right story. And I don't mean story in a manipulative way, but you know what I mean. Um, like we love stories. We love narratives. And if I can if I can help people see how their story connects with our story and it just makes sense. So that's one of the things just kind of on the high level, I would say, make sure your vision is strong because it's easy to go, holy crap, how are we going to pay our bills this month? Or man, what are we going to do? Because honestly, um, years ago, we had a few weeks where it was like, man, it is tight. You know, like, okay, let's pay that next week. Let's hold off. Thank God we're not in that position anymore. Um, but in those days, it would have been easy to just go to some people and be like, hey, we really are tight. Can you guys help us? Or just do a plea from the stage. But it's so much more effective to go, okay, you know, God's in control and God's got this. But man, look at what's happening. Look at what we get to be a part of. And um, so, yeah, that was a long answer. Did that help at all? Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. So, 
Yeah, and from your perspective, from my perspective, that's, I kind of got sidetracked. That's where I have to keep coming back to the vision. Okay, why are we doing what we're doing? Like, who is this impacting? What is it affecting? That's the story I'm telling. I'm not telling the story of, we have a need, can you help us? Um, nobody cares. There's needs everywhere. So, yeah. Good question. Anybody else? I know Michael's got like five more locked and loaded if you don't, so... Do you think that operational efficiency is more commonly learned from within or is it uh, taught by bringing someone from the outside? And if, if it's from bringing someone from the outside, do you think that it's financially worth it for most medium to large size businesses to bring in a manager whose only job is to promote operational efficiency even when you're not in a recession? Well, that is multifaceted. So, so let's start with the first one. Is it easier to become operationally efficient from within or bringing somebody from without? So let me ask, let me throw it back to you guys. Uh, in your guys' experience, what do you think? If you want to change your operational efficiency, do you think it's better to do it from within, somebody who already knows and sees, or is it better to bring somebody from outside who sees things differently? And this isn't loaded. I'm just, I'm curious what your opinions are. Yeah, Aaron's got his hand up. I think it depends on the type of problem you're solving, mm -hmm. like in terms of operations. And if you have an expert that inside your company, it's best to use that first because yeah. they're going to know your company, your culture. They're going to know what changes will stick. But if you find that you don't have anyone in your company who's an expert in that, you might have no choice but to go outside for help. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's advantages to both. Um, go ahead, Sean. I was just going to say, following up on change, I think yep. sometimes change is easy, but making the change stick, as he just said, yeah, yeah. is the hardest part. So yeah. adjusting th some things to be efficient might come real natural, but then all of a sudden everybody's going to go back to the way they were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I could probably go either way on that. I think, the, like Aaron said, depending on what the problem is and what you're trying to solve and what you're trying to change. Yeah, because like at first it seems like it makes sense to go internally because they know the company, they know the ins and outs. But I think a lot of those changes for operational efficiency are painful. Mm -hmm. and, and if you have all those relationships inside the company, it might yeah. be better to bring someone, someone in from the outside who doesn't have those relationship, relationships yet that who can you know, make those decisions more callously. Yeah, and here's the thing. Um, I've, I've said this before. I've never known a micromanager that thought they were a micromanager. Like they were blind to the fact that they managed people that way. And, and I think that might be the case too. If you are operationally inefficient, you might not even be aware that you're operationally inefficient. You might think, man, we are killing it and not have any idea. And so I think it depends on your awareness. I think, um, I think there's a lot of companies that probably would be better off bringing somebody in a hatchet man and just making changes. And, um, but I think it's, yeah, case by case, probably. That's a good question. You thought through that one. I like that one. We didn't even get to the other, other aspects of that, did we? Well, the, the second piece was, and, and I say medium to large size company, because I think yeah. that this is probably outside the scope of a small business, um, mm -hmm. to hire someone whose yeah, only yeah. job is to continually pursue operational efficiency. Or yeah. is that something that's better done by way of consulting and contracting? Probably, I, I wouldn't hire somebody to do that. I would contract somebody to do that. Probably, unless they had, you know, something else they could really offer. But 
Um, but I like that. Um, even like in some ways, part of Kim's role here at the church, like she, obviously she's a pastor, but part of her role is like keeper of the culture in some ways because she is closer to the ground on a lot of things than I am. And so she sees stuff at a different level than I do and she's able to go, no, 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 that's not, that's not how we do that. Like we would not do it that way. And so I think even if you didn't have that as a hired role, I think there's somebody maybe on your team that you could say, hey, you're great with systems. Could you, could you just take a look at our systems and see if there's a way we could do this better? If you have any ideas, just let me know. And you don't, you're not paying them to do that. It's not in their job description. But if somebody is, has a, an eye for systems, they'd probably be really good at just going, hey, why do we do it that way? Oh, I'm not sure. Well, if we did it this way, do you think it would? Oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so I think there's probably somebody on a lot of different teams that would be able to do that if you just ask them. That's a good question. Is that a good one to finish with? Do we have anything else? Okay, 7.58. I'm not gonna kick you out. You can sit around and talk. And honestly, I love on leadership nights after you guys, after we done and you guys talk and chat and I hear you guys exchanging numbers and that pumps me up. So thank you guys. Um, yeah, I'll stick around if you guys wanna chat some more. I'd love to. For those of you watching online or listening to the podcast, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Let me pray for you and we'll be done. God, thanks for this day. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives. I just pray uh, for those that are here that maybe they're struggling, they're discouraged, they're trying to find answers to how to lead their team. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would deliver wisdom to them, deliver creative ideas, give them insight in how to lead better, how to love better, how to teach better, how to just be a better team leader, employee, whatever it is they need. God, I pray that you deliver that to them. So God, minister in them, minister through them. I pray that you give them an incredible week. And I pray that, um, Lord, this year would be the greatest year for us as far as fruit in our leadership that we've ever had up to this point. So God, I just pray that this would be a, a blessed year for each of these leaders as they're leading their teams, leading their homes, whatever the case may be. So God, be glorified through us in Christ's name. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great night. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcast.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to Summit Podcasts, and we will see you in the next episode.